Welcome to Tauri's Community Church. We hope this talk helps you in figuring it out because we believe that when people discover truth and love, they are able to face life in a different kind of way and come alive. If this talk is relevant for you and you wish to discover more, please head over to tauraisecommunitychurch.com.au forward slash services. And with that, we hope you enjoy today's talk. Today is a really exciting day. Today is a joyful day. Today is a delightful day because, like you've already alluded to, young Judson is getting baptised. A massive round of applause for how exciting that is. And I see there's lots of family here, so welcome. Welcome to Tauros. It's great to see you all here and you've got a phenomenal uh, family member, I suppose, because you've all got a different relationship. I can't just paint you all as grandparents, but <laughs> it's really exciting. But the other thing which I'd just quickly like to say, which is, was incredibly joyful, was Tim's already talked about the, the chocolate bark that's being sold but he didn't mention that that was actually made by some of the youth. And so on Tuesday afternoon at, at Charge, uh, Luke and Talia do a phenomenal job of gathering some of the kids from the community and they, and they painted the picture of the why, of why we should serve one another and then they led them into like a, a physical act of serving one another and then so they made the chocolate bark with the mission being to help support other friends and other young people that are in the local community that need to come along to camp because the reality is, is that 70% historically, 70% of young people that come on camp can't come without a sponsored ticket, which is pretty crazy, but it kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse into like the, the world that we operate in. And so on Tuesday afternoon, you should have seen it, we're in the cafe there, and Luke and Talia did a great job. I promise that not only did they wash their hands, these dirty youth, but they also put on gloves. I promise that the hygiene was upheld, but it was an awesome day, and I would love it if we could all just... Luke and Talia have done an excellent job all year long, every Tuesday afternoon, faithfully turning up to, to be present with the kids, and I think it'd be really good if we could just celebrate with them. They are superstars. But today, we're talking about... Christmas, we're talking about Advent, and Advent is obviously a season of preparation, of preparing ourselves for the celebration. But today we're picking up on one of the main themes of Advent, and that is of joy. So last week Sharon spoke about hope, and that was brilliant for anyone that was here, but today we're speaking about joy. And I know for some of you that drawing the line between Advent and Christmas and the story of Jesus to joy is an easy one to draw. But I want to challenge you by saying that this morning, I think that there is a dynamic to that relationship which is yet undiscovered for many of you. I think there is more on offer, more joy on offer than perhaps what many of you have tasted before. And why are we talking about joy? Like, is there a reason beyond it just being that time of the year? And the reality is, is that our world desperately needs joy. Our world is hungry for joy. Our community have got so many reasons why joy has been robbed from it. There are people in this church, in fact, every single one of you are thirsty for joy. When we look at our behaviours, we are thirsty for delight, we're thirsty for joy. Some of us find life just so overwhelming at times, but we've got this common trait, all of us, in that we're all thirsty and hungry for joy. And the same thing was true 2,000 years ago. And then an event happened in which it all sort of changed. But there's a reason why we're all hungry and thirsty for joy. Evolutionary biologists sort of talk about whether you believe it or not. They talk about how our, our minds are physically hardwired towards the negative, towards perceiving threats to being able to, to survive, I suppose. And so we've got this predisposition, at least many of us have got this predisposition to sort of seeing the threat and seeing the negative, and so it's hard to, for joy to coexist with that, whether we believe that or not. Neuroscientists propose that it takes three seconds for a, a negative memory to be imprinted onto your brain, but a positive memory to take 14 seconds. Again, I don't know if that's true, but at least we know the direction of it is probably true. Whether the actual numbers are true or not, I don't know, but we see the theme of it. So predisposition-wise, we are susceptible to being robbed of joy. And then when we look at the way in which the world around us has been formed and created and the systems that have happened, and we see that we've put... Financial means is the number one idol, the one, number one mechanism. All of a sudden, my daughter is exclaiming in joy, yay! But we see these financial systems in which, uh, we see structures of our society in which finance is the number one thing instead of health or spirituality or family or relationships or any of these other sorts of things. And so we see systems and mechanisms in, in society in which we suffer because of it, in which our joy is robbed because of it. An example would be the 24-7 news cycle in which we are preyed upon because 
fear sells because threat sells. And so yet again, we have this mechanism in which our joy is stolen. The way that social media keeps us entrapped and enslaved to it, the same sort of thing. We find ourselves constantly being robbed of joy. And so I say all of that this morning because I'd like to position us all on a journey to prepare ourselves this Advent season to experience more joy. And it all starts with an event 2,000 years ago. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start with the event. It's in Luke chapter 2 from verse 1 to 20. But before we go any further, I might just quickly pray. How about that? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. I just thank you for the wonderful celebration of joy, of baptism that we get to to, uh, participate in today, that we get to um, enjoy. And I just pray for each of us this morning as we gather around your word. I pray that there might be something that's relevant, something that's powerful, something that might be life-changing, life-altering, and that we might be able to take another step in our apprenticeship to you. Um, We just pray that throughout everything that happens this morning, that your name might be glorified, and that we might have a wonderful morning all together. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 2, let's pick up this story here. I might read off this screen. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So, I might just pause on most of these slides here, sorry boys, I didn't give you guys a heads up there. So, Luke begins his account by naming and placing, by timing um, and, and saying this is the space in which these events occurred in so that his readers in the, in the early centuries might know that it actually happened. So he, he's grounding this story of Jesus' arrival in the events of the time and the place so that we, some 2,000 years later, can be confident this, this was a historical event, that it wasn't just a fable or a myth or a, a story that was made up. And then the other interesting thing that Luke does here, and he does throughout the next 20 verses, is he paints a picture between the the principalities and powers of the world around and the incoming king being Jesus, and he lines them up side by side. It's very subtle to you and I some 2,000 years later because we don't understand the context as well, but Luke draws the two together. He juxtapositions them both together so he can, can illustrate just the enormous gulf in glory between the Roman Empire and God's incoming kingdom. And so here when he says he names Caesar Augustus, and the reason he does that is because this man was the man that brought the Roman Empire back together and he was famous for ushering in a time of peace. And this man was considered to be a semi-god and be worthy of praise, worthy of worship, worthy of adoration. I've got a little quote here that was written on all the temples. Listen to this, it says, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and saviour of the whole world. And so Luke starts this account by highlighting this man with that sort of inscription which every person in the Roman Empire would have been aware of. But does that statement not sound more like the Jesus that is just about to be born, the Jesus whose kingdom is about to be ushered into? And so, again, throughout this story, we're going to see parallels between the actual world and the world that is incoming. Thank you, boys. Next slide, thank you. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And so here what Luke is doing is he's showing that this story of this birth of a king is not a new story, but it's a continuation of God's redemptive story that's taken all of human history to tell so far. Keep going. Thank you. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Thank you. And there were shepherds. So these shepherds were low-income earners, right? We can't think of them as being business owners. These were often, most probably, young boys. They were boys of 10, boys of 11, boys of 12. If we think about the account of David in the Old Testament we see an account of a young boy. And so here were these shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's so interesting that the angel of the Lord appeared to these boys of 10, 11, and 12 out in the field. It didn't occur to... The angels didn't appear to Augustus Caesar and announce the arrival of the new king. It didn't happen in, in the temple 
where the meeting place between heaven and earth, right, didn't happen to priests, but rather it happened to the, the lowly peasants. And God is saying, He's giving a, a foretaste of His incoming kingdom and saying that the low shall be lifted up and that our current economy of power and privilege means nothing. Thank you, boys. And then this verse here is the crux of the Advent story. We'll come back to it later. I'll read it now and then we'll continue on and we'll circle back to it in a little while. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Thank you, boys. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth to those whose favour rests. Thank you, Ethan. When the, angels, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, and when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. Last one, thank you, boys. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. The interesting thing about this last slide that I'd just quickly like to point your attention towards is that whenever we experience the good news that causes great joy, right? It always demands a response. And the response in this story is either one of pondering and reflection, or one of praise and one of worship. And that, my friends, is the Christmas story. That, my friends, is the, the beautiful story for which we come each year to celebrate. But let's head back to verse 10, the crux of this story, and let's unpack a little bit of this, okay? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Did you know that, that command is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The reason why is because fear is the opposite to love. It is the antithesis to love. Nothing robs us of our joy like what fear does. And so the angel comes and says, do not fear, because I bring you good news. And when he says good news, the actual original for that was euangelion. Can everybody say that? Euangelion? Mary, can you have a go, please? I know you're shy. <laughs> no, because I'm butchering it too. That's why I was trying to deflect. But it actually is the word that we get evangelism from. Or an older translation was also the, the word of uh, good news or gospel, right? But this is another moment in which Luke is using language that was common in the day to illustrate the difference between the, the human glory, Augustus Caesar, and the oncoming king and the great joy that was to be found there. Because what would happen is that every time a king was born, every time a war was won, when Augustus Caesar went out and he was able to bring the empire back together again, a preacher or a herald would be hired to go into the, into the streets, into the marketplace, and to declare the good news, to exalt the good news, to make it known what was happening, to bring the good tidings, the glad tidings is what we would call at Christmas time. And so here in this story, we could expect that with a, a king being born, someone would, would be hired to go and declare the good news. In fact, that's what Augustus Caesar did. He hired preachers to go into all the corners of the empire and to declare the good news. And yet here, the one that has been hired to declare the good news is an angel. God's kingdom is so much greater, so much more glorious than that of Rome. So much more glorious than that of what we walk in today. And, I'll and this news will cause great joy. This is the part that I love. Great joy. The Greek adjective for great, does anybody know what it is? It's mega. It's not just good. It's not just great. It's mega. Mega joy. I bring you good news that will produce great joy. I bring you good news that will cause mega joy. Can you think of a time when you've experienced mega joy? Can you reflect on a time that where perhaps someone burst through the back door of the house, a friend that you hadn't seen in a while, and the absolute joy that came over you as that happened? Or the time that you fell in love, and the mega joy that came with that? 
Or maybe when a new movie or a new book or something trivial like that, the new James Bond film, I don't know. <laughs> a mega joy moment. I can think of a time in my life where there's a really good story of mega joy. Eric and I were living in Adelaide at the time, and we were pretty dirt broke. <laughs> and we wanted to come back at Christmas time to celebrate with family and friends, and there was also a couple of weddings on at the same time. It was that season of life where it seems to be like every fortnight there's a wedding over summer. And so we wanted to come back, but we were torn because we couldn't afford to come back for both the... Uh, Mum's birthday is four days before Christmas. So everyone, calendars, okay? Sharon's birthday, four days before Christmas. And actually, her middle name's Joy. Oh my goodness, people! <laughs> so Sharon's birthday's on the 21st, again. 21st, and then there's Christmas, and then in early January, there were, I think, two weddings, and Erica and I were looking at our budgets. She was a uni student, I was on a casual contract, and we're like, how on earth can we make this work? How on earth can we pay for all of this? So we called up, and we kept having this ongoing conversation with Mum and Dad, and we came to the conclusion, we told Mum, look, Mum, I'm so sorry, we're not going to make it back for Christmas. We're not going to make it back for your birthday. We're going to have to come back in the new year for these weddings, and we'll just do a late one then. And if anybody that knows my Mum... She loves just having everyone together. She just loves Christmas. She loves birthdays. She loves having everyone around the table and having a, a wonderful, joyous time, right? Little did Chaz know, though, little did Mum know that we'd actually spoken to the rest of the family saying that we would make it back in time. <laughs> so Eric and I packed up our things and we came back just in time for Mum's birthday. It was the 21st of December. And the family had organised for us to go out for breakfast out to a cafe in Invermate, out to Blue Cafe. So Erica and I arrived, we, we drive up in our little car, and we're a little bit nervous of, oh, has the timing not worked out here? Will she see our car and then the surprise be sort of up? What's going to happen here? And so as we pull up, we, we notice about two or three cars behind us, pulling in just a little, a few moments later, was Mum and the rest of the family. And we're like, oh, the surprise is not yet ruined. Surprise is not yet spoiled. And so we hop out of the car and we start walking across the car park and we think, oh, she must have seen us by now. And so we're expecting her to sort of hop out of the car and to, you know, what are you doing here type thing? But she hasn't seen us and she hops out of her car and for some reason she's got her back to us and she hasn't bothered to look at the surroundings around her. I don't know if she's always that much of a space cadet, but this day she was. The rest of the family all see us, except for mum. <laughs> Maybe it was something divine. And so Eric and I are walking, and we're, we're walking towards them, we're thinking, oh, she's going to turn around any moment, and there's going to be the big surprise. Ah, happy birthday! Something like this. But we get all the way up, and she still hasn't seen. And I thought that Michael's glances, Rachel's glances, Rachel's terrible at surprises, secrets, I thought that any of it, surely it would be given up by now. And so we get there, and I sort of stand behind Mum, like, what do I do? She still hasn't seen. And so I just sort of lean over and I give her, a, 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 drape my arms around her and I give her a hug and I give her a squeeze and she sort of jolts in shock and she sort of looks over her shoulder and she sees me and the first expression of her face is one of panic <laughs> and at that moment I had this awful thought running through my mind of maybe I'm not the favourite child <laughs> and then she drops her bag and she spins around and she sees Erica and I there and she's, she's just screams out this and bursts into tears. She screams out, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> and it was at that moment that I knew that Michael really was the favourite child. <laughs> but it was such a beautiful picture for me of my mum of just being exploding of what I would call this mega joy moment, you know. You're not supposed to be here. We always tease her about that story and I always love it and I always hold it so dear. But that story and that glimpse of joy is just such a, a shadow of what this scripture here is talking about and, that, and the, the mega joy that these young shepherd boys must have felt as they were out on that pasture that night. I come to bring you good news that will cause mega joy for all the people. Because, and the reason why there was mega joy is because of the gospel. And so what is the gospel to you? Is it... If I pray this prayer, I get to go to heaven. Is that the gospel? Is it, I'm saved through grace and, and, and not through works? Is that the gospel? Is it, I'm wealthy and healthy? The prosperity doctrine? Is it social justice? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is this next line here. It's none of those other things. Those other things are all part and parcel of the parcel, I suppose, or at least varying degrees, not quite all of them, but 
You understand what I'm saying? The gospel is this line here. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. The gospel message has got nothing to do with you and I explicitly. The good news which produces mega joy is the fact that 2,000 years ago, a king was born. A king whose name was Jesus. This is the gospel message. This is the thing for which there was glad tidings and good news that created that mega joy. A saviour has been born to you. But let's linger here because this next part is also quite telling. Luke uses some more language here. He says, he is the Messiah, the Lord. Now that Lord can obviously be translated into the king or political leader or anything like that. But his use of the word Lord here can also be translated into Yahweh. Yahweh being the name of the God that they worshipped. And so Luke was confusing his audience in a sense here because what he was saying is something mysterious. We take this for granted. We take it so much for granted. But Luke is saying, somehow this God that you worship, some mysterious mechanism, we don't understand it. Somehow he is the one that has been born to you right now. That is God in baby form. This is the Lord. A saviour has been born to you. And where there is a king, there is a kingdom. And so the good news is, is that as this king was born, a new kingdom was ushered in for all of us. And I'd like to give a little bit of an illustration for this part here. One way that they used to talk about it, and which we could still talk about it today, is the fact that there are two ages. There's the old age, and then this, the new kingdom, the new age. Ages and kingdoms, right? Old kingdom, old age, new age, new kingdom. And in this old age, or this old kingdom, one of the dominant themes that we could ascribe to it is one of sorrow. One of suffering. This is the fact that the world is broken, right? That there is war, there is death, there is loss, there is illness, there is pain. And then an event happened 2,000 years ago in which a king was born, but not a king like Augustus Caesar, but rather a king of greater glory, a king of eternal glory. And this king ushered in this new kingdom right here. And one of the ways that we could describe, or one of the themes that we could ascribe to this one is that of joy. We could also ascribe the other Advent themes of love and peace and hope. But for the purpose of today, because we're talking about joy, we're going to stay with joy. And so where you and I occupy, our entire lives are spent, in fact, in this time in between. After the birth of Jesus, but before the old kingdom, the old age is done away with forever and the new one is established for the rest of time. We live in this time in between. Theologians call this time the now and not yet. I think that was George Eldon Ladd that said that, that coined that phrase, but it's a beautiful phrase, the now and not yet. So we live in this in-between time here. And what that means is that we experience both the sorrow and the suffering and the pain of the world that's around us, but we can also experience the joy that is the flavour and the theme of the incoming kingdom. Right? This is why Paul was able to write in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, whoa, that's horrible. 2 Corinthians Apologies to everybody that's online on the stream. I'm sorry. This is why he was able to write suffering yet always rejoicing. Okay? So because we live in this time in between, it's almost like as if those of us that choose to follow Jesus, that choose to participate in this new kingdom under this new uh, ruler, it's almost like as if we've already got a foot in heaven. And we see heaven manifest itself here on earth in times of like a healing. Do you know what I mean? Or times of those extraordinary moments with God, those extraordinary moments of generosity and of love and of spirituality and of freedom. And so we experience heaven on earth at times in here. But what happens is, is that in our tradition, we use Advent, a time of personal preparation, to prepare ourselves for this event here that happened 2,000 years ago. 
for the birth of a king. And that's fine, that's correct, that's true, but the early church, that for the first few centuries, they did it likewise, but they actually spent most of their time in Advent preparing themselves for this birth, which is the second coming of a king, which is when the king would return to judge the living and the dead. We get a little bit of emotional baggage and we get a little bit confused when we talk about this time here because of 2,000 years of misappropriation and a fear-mongering and all sorts of dirty words. So we, a better, easier way to describe this one perhaps is Justice Day, a time when justice and peace will be established for all of eternity, a peace so much greater than that of Augustus Caesar, right? But what you could do is you could quite easily, in fact, I think it's quite true and quite appropriate, is that you could call this entire time period in between, you could call that Advent. You could call that Advent. You could call that as being the personal preparation of the, oncoming, uh, of the birth of the king and the oncoming kingdom which produces this mega joy. Now, why do I say this? Why is this relevant for us today? There are three reasons, and they are very, very relevant. The first one is is that it means that we've got an invitation to a lifelong season of Advent. And what we'll discover as we spend a lifetime, I apologise to all of you guys in this side of the room that can't see a thing. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) But by spending a lifetime in this season of preparation of Advent, of preparing oneself of a discipleship, of apprenticeship to Jesus, what we discover is that joy is not just an emotion. That's one of the things that we misunderstand on the surface. Joy is more than an emotion. Joy is so much more, but if we don't go and experience the mega joy of the gospel, we can never find that joy. You see, a joy is actually the inner condition of the heart of Jesus. It's the inner condition of the person of Jesus. Likewise, love and peace and hope. You see, Jesus is joy. Jesus is hope. Jesus is peace. Jesus is hope. You know? And so our first invitation is to participate in a lifelong season of Advent so we might condition our inner being for joy. There's this beautiful uh, quote that I'd love to share with you guys now. Thank you, Ethan. It's the, yeah, that one. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, in His second coming, in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with Him in glory. And then the second part of it is the part that I love. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of now and not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, the brokenness, suffering and pain that characterise life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of the future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives life. I love that last line. In that Advent tension, the church lives life. In that Advent tension is where you and I live our life as we try to hold together sorrow and joy. But the invitation is is that as we go on a lifelong journey, it expands and enlarges our ability to do so. It's a beautiful thing. The second invitation is that we are able, it's related to that first one, is that we're able to hold sorrow and joy together. Not only is that possible, I believe it to be a scriptural uh, command of us. It's a, it comes alongside of maturity. You see, again, joy is more than an emotion. And so what happens here, very quickly, there are four different types of people that we can become. I'm just going to, again, apologies to you, Sarah, and your side of the room. There are four p- p- different types of personhood that we can become as we try to hold sorrow and the mega news, the, the good news that produces mega joy. The first one is that we can reject it and we never get to participate in the inner being of joy. We only ever get to experience joy as an emotion as the world knows joy. The second one is that we find joy fleeting. And I think this is where most of the Western church would find itself in relation to joy because we receive the good news that produces mega joy, but we also have this sorrow 
from the old kingdom and the reality of the world around us and we don't know how to hold them in dynamic tension together because we haven't gone on the journey of deep uh, maturity with Christ so we don't know how to hold them together. And so what we find is that our joy gets overwhelmed by the sorrow of the world around us. And so we find joy fleeting, we find the gospel, we find church, we find Christianity uh, unfulfilling, we find it that we're still thirsty and still hungry and still searching for more. The third different type of person that we can become here is that we can flee into escapism. And this is the person that embraces that joy message so deeply and so fully, but they don't have a theology and they don't have an understanding of the fact that we still live in a time of now and not yet and there's, there's still this time of Advent. And so they don't know how to hold sorrow. We see this all the time in super spirituality, right? We see it all the time. My favourite definition of mental health at the moment is having a perfect grasp of reality. People in this quadrant here that disappear into escapism, I think I've misspelt that, so just all ignore that. People that disappear into that, another way of thinking that is wishful thinking, right? Where there's just uh, toxic positivity would be another way of describing that one, right? But Jesus is calling us into an imitation of him where he was able to hold both sorrow and joy at the same time and hold it in perfect peace with one another because it was about his inner being as opposed to an emotion. And this is where we are called to imitate and to follow and to be led into. And that is this complete state of inner joy. And that is the invitation that is on offer for each and every single one of us. There's another beautiful quote here that I'd love to share with you now. Thank you, Ethan. We're wrapping up towards a close. I love this one. C.S. Lewis is just an absolute master, isn't he? Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. Isn't that true? <laughs> we seem to just catch it. If you want to get warm, listen to this, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. See, they are not a sort of prize which God could, if he, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great foundation of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to its spray, if you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. I love that. I love that. Karl Barth said, this triune being, so the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Kate, you guys are welcome to come on up here. Is, the triune being is life, is radiant, and what it radiates is joy. What he's saying there is that God is joy. God is joy. And so our invitation that Christ offers us is that if we want to get wet, if we want to experience joy, we need to go to the source. We need to go to God and experience Him. God doesn't just distribute joy. He is joy. God doesn't just distribute love. He is love. God doesn't just give us the prize of peace. He is peace. God doesn't just give us hope, but He is our hope. God is joy. And His arrival produces mega joy. And so our invitation isn't to chase after this thing of joy, but rather to chase after the person of joy. And that's our invitation. In that story, towards the end, when people heard and received the good news that caused mega joy, that caused great joy, it demanded a response from them. It demanded a response to either praise or to ponder. And that's our invitation to either respond with praise and to respond in ponder. And so my challenge and invitation to each and every single one of you in this room, no matter where you're at in the spiritual journey of apprenticeship to Jesus is, will you choose over the next seven days, every day, to go to the source of joy and to get a little bit wet? Why don't we all stand and I'll close, we'll close with a song. And see, our world, in fact, each and every single one of us, we all desperately need joy. We're all craving, we're all thirsty for joy. We're all hungry for it. And as we apprentice under Jesus and go to the source of joy, 
there is a hope that our inner world can be realigned with joy. And that it's not just an emotion, but rather it's a condition of our inner being. Paul would call this the renewal of your mind. Neurologists would call this neuroplasticity. (laughs) There is a great hope for each and every single one of you that your predisposition to skepticism, to threats, can be reconditioned and realigned without it being internally joyful. about to sing. What are we singing, Kate? Joy to the world. It's almost like Kate just had a premonition or something. <laughs> Gee, you're talented. Whoa. Whew. How about I'll just quickly pray. Sarah, are you laughing at me? Gosh. Imagine if I did. Would it still be joyful? Or? Gee, you're nasty. Alright, let's quickly pray. Uh, uh, let's pray and then we'll sing together. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your message of joy. I thank you that you, your arrival brings mega joy within each one of us. And I pray that as we sing collectively together now, I pray that we might experience your arrival in strength and in power, that your presence might just envelop us. And I pray that that might just produce within us just that never-ending never joy. I pray that as we leave from today, that we might be committed to going on that inward journey so that we might experience joys more than just an emotion, but as rather that inner condition of our being. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed this talk. We've created a free resource for this series, which is available for you over at Tauray's Community Church com.au forward slash services. You'll find links in the description. We are praying for you. Have a great week.